wonderful to welcome all of uh, you who are guests with us today for our VIEW weekend. This is a very unique place in, in many, many ways, very special place. Uh, you're going to find that out when you come here, and of course you will because that's God's will for your life. <laughs> I've checked in and I got a direct line, so uh, we're, we're glad to have you here. Uh, it's been interesting to me, um, this is just a little kind of inside thing. Um, Bill Gates has a lot of money, as you know, and they have a massive foundation, the Gates Foundation, and uh, they're not particularly favorable toward Christians, just have to say that. Um, there was a Christian ministry in Seattle that uh, they were giving money to, and when they found out, they didn't know that it was a Christian ministry, when they found out it was a Christian ministry, they made them give it all back. Just an interesting thing. Well, I happened to get a letter uh, about a week ago from, uh, from Cambridge University in England from the Gates Scholars Honors System funded by Bill and Melinda Gates. And uh, it was to congratulate our institution for the first one of our graduates to receive the Gates Honors Scholarship full ride at Cambridge. And he was chosen out of 110 applicants. Amazing. I love to think that Bill Gates is going to pay for somebody training to be a professor at the Master Seminary. <laughs> that is really exciting to me. And then I, I just have to say uh, congratulations also to our business department here, which is really a very special part of our college. Uh, that. Those of you who are a part of it understand the rigors of the business department, but you'll be happy to know this. About a week ago, uh, we received a letter from the National Association of Schools of Business, which, as it sounds, is a national uh, organization that ranks and rates business schools. And they, uh, they sent us the results of their ratings in California. And uh, wh what is very important in their sort of quantifiable, measurable metrics, the way they rate schools, one of the key things is what they call the CPA exam pass rate. CPA exam pass rate, which is obvious. What percentage of your students who take the CPA exam pass and at what kind of score? Um, they had listed all the colleges and universities in the state of California, uh, and, and I'll just give you kind of the top ones that you would think of, USC, UCLA, UC Irvine, UC Berkeley, Stanford, um, Pepperdine, they all passed the CPA exam at about a 52% rate. The master's college rate was 77.4. Now, that was 11 points higher than the next school. Pretty incredible, pretty incredible. 11 points higher than the next school and 25 points higher than the big university business school. They know we're out there. In fact, I read the email and it said congratulations with six exclamation points. <laughs> You're number one in the state of California. Well, we've always known that, right? I mean, <laughs> so thank you, you business students. You're making a difference. And when our, when our guys go in and gals go in to take the CPA exam, they do well. It's really fun to think about the fact that uh, one of our graduates is going to get a full ride 
in uh, to study theology at, at Cambridge. Another of our graduates uh, has uh, been given, a, has been accepted into Harvard Law School. Another one, Johns Hopkins Med School, and it just keeps going like that. So this is a special place, and thank you for all the good work you do. I thought maybe this morning we'd, uh, we'd just kind of talk about leadership a little bit. Uh, we're, we're all kind of watching a really bizarre presidential thing, whatever it is. It's just a crazy circus. Um, and I was thinking when, uh, when we were listening to Psalm 37, don't be angry. Somebody asked me the other day, what do you think is the, what do you think is the, the most obvious um, flaw or fault in our culture? And, and I basically said anger. Anger. Everybody is just furious. Everybody's angry. Uh, people are angry, angrier than I've ever seen them because uh, they have never been so invested in their own lives and their own achievements and their own promotion and their own self-satisfaction as they are in this culture. There was a time years ago when people cared about other people. Now it's all about me. It's all about me. And you post your own face all over the place on whatever, Facebook or Instagram or whatever they do. Um, and what basically that what has been communicated to this generation of young people is that they're really significant, really important, and uh, that there's no one more important than you are. And you have to understand that when you believe that, you're never going to be satisfied because you're not going to get what you think you deserve. So you just have a whole culture of people who are just angry, just angry, angry about everything, but primarily about a lack of personal fulfillment. And it only gets worse as this generation gets older. They're going to get more angry and more angry and more angry and more angry. When you have a culture where you just keep passing out entitlements to people who don't work and don't produce and don't do anything, and, uh, and they get soured on that and they never have enough, they're going to get angrier and angrier. It's a good word from Psalm 37. And of course, what does the Bible say to us? Rejoice always. And again, I say, we got everything to rejoice about, right? Absolutely. Even our leaders are angry. They're angry at life. They're angry at circumstances. They're angry at each other. I thought this morning I might um, have you open your Bible to Acts 27. Some years ago, I uh, uh, studied this chapter, and it struck me as a really great chapter on leadership. It's a familiar chapter, and it's kind of hard for me to cover an entire chapter. Actually, sometimes hard for me to cover a verse, but a chapter is a challenge. This is a chapter about leadership, and leadership emerges in a crisis. Leadership always emerges in a crisis. We would like to think that the selective people who come to the Master's College are going to find a place in the world where they're going to have significant leadership. And th there is the world's definition of a leader. If you were to just kind of accumulate all the books on leadership, you'd come up with words like this, uh, visionary, action-oriented, courageous, energetic, objective-oriented, paternalistic, egocentric, intolerant of incompetence, indispensable. Those are the kinds of words that uh, are thrown around when we think about leaders. Uh, leaders can have blind spots like authoritarianism, rationalization, unaccountability, sensuality, greed, all those kinds of things. Uh, we, we look at leadership as we see it out in the world, and it can be a very, very ugly thing. But there is a kind of leadership that is demonstrated in this incident in Acts 27 that I thought might be kind of interesting for us to look at. Every so many years I go back to this, uh, and I think it'll prove helpful to you. As we open the chapter, the Apostle Paul is about to be sent to Rome, 
He has been a prisoner in Caesarea on the coast of Israel since he was arrested when he returned from his last missionary journey. So he came back, uh, there was a riot that uh, resulted in the temple, and uh, he, uh, he basically was arrested by the Romans to quell the riot in the city of Jerusalem. They took him down to the Roman installation at Caesarea on the coast, and they've had him there languishing in prison for a long time. Uh, now he says, look, I'm a Roman citizen, I have a right to a trial, uh, and he does, that's according to Roman law, so they're going to put him on a ship and haul him off to Rome so that he can have what he's entitled to as a Roman citizen. Now, when he starts the journey, you just need to know he's the bottom guy on the ladder. He is the prisoner. He is in the hold of the ship at the bottom. Just about everybody in the ship is above him. He is the guy with no authority at all. But by the time you get to the end of this chapter and the crisis has unfolded, he is in charge of absolutely everything. And that's what leadership does. Leadership develops and demonstrates itself in a crisis. And we'll see how that unfolds. He starts at the bottom, he ends up at the top, and there are some reasons why. Let's look at the opening of the chapter. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Cohort could be as many as 600 men. Augustan's cohort would be the private troops of the Caesar himself. So these are the crack troops, these are the best. Um, for whatever reason, they're on this particular ship, and... Uh, Paul is a kind of a hot potato prisoner, so the best of Caesar's troops are escorting him. The head of the band is Julius. Uh, they're embarking uh, in an Adramitian ship, a ship from Adramitia on the Mediterranean, about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia. That would be Asia Minor or Turkey up on the north side of the Mediterranean. Uh, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Now just look at this, verse 3. The next day... They've been at sea one day. We put in at Sidon. You know where Sidon is, Tyre and Sidon. Remember the history of that up on the north coast of Israel. So they just hopped from Caesarea up the coast, and they, they port for a brief time at Sidon. And Julius, this is, the, this is the centurion, the man who's in charge of this cohort. Uh, he treats Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. Now, do you know anything about the responsibility of a Roman soldier? If a Roman soldier lost a prisoner, he could lose what? His life. What is going on here? How in the world can this guy, who is in charge of the most elite corps of troops that protect the emperor himself, how is it that this guy is so irresponsible that he would let the Apostle Paul go ashore in Sidon and receive some refreshment and care from his friends? I mean, the assumption is going to be that, that he's going to be gone. How does this happen? And the answer is very simple. Here's the first thing about leaders. They quickly develop trust. Leaders are trusted. That's the stock and trade of leadership. For whatever reason, in a 24-hour period, or maybe a little more than that, the Apostle Paul had convinced Julius that he would never do anything to harm him. That he would never put his position as a soldier in jeopardy. He trusted Paul in one day. This is the stuff that puts people in a position to lead when they are trusted. Julius did not believe that Paul would run 
He believed he would come back. He trusted him. How he convinced him of that, I don't know. But he did. And that's where leadership begins. Leadership begins with trust. If you're going to be a leader, people are going to follow you. They have to trust that you have their best interest in your heart. Julius believed that Paul wouldn't do anything to harm him, even though he was the centurion and Paul was the prisoner. That's where leadership always begins. Now there's more here, very quickly. Let's pick it up at verse 4. From there, we, this is Luke writing, Paul's there as well, we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, the island of the Mediterranean, because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, uh, th those are countries just at the bottom of what, where modern Turkey is, right along the north coast of the Mediterranean, they uh, landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an, found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, so they're going to they're going to remove Paul from the ship from Adramedia, and they're going to get one from uh, Alexandria to take him to Rome. He put us on board. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Canitis, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone, and you can look on your Bible map and see all these places. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Things aren't going the way they're supposed to go. They're not getting what they needed. What they needed was wind. Wind to blow them in the direction of Rome, to blow them west. It wasn't happening. All of a sudden... When time had passed, verse 9, and the voyage was now dangerous. Why was it dangerous? Because so much time had passed, they were getting toward October. And in October, you had the famous Uroquillos, the winds, like Santa Ana winds here. They come down off the Russian mountains, and they come across from the east, across the Mediterranean. And there's actually a place, and we're going to see about that, on the north coast of Africa called the, the Graveyard of Ships because the wind is so fierce it'll blow ships into the rocks, and it's a place where through the centuries ruined ships have, have ended up. They don't want to get into this Uroquillo. They don't want to get into this Uroclodon, to use the Latin term. And time is passing, and the wind is not favorable. And obviously, the only way they can move that ship is with wind. This is fascinates me. Paul, the, the fast is already over. The fast is referring to the Day of Atonement, uh, and that, that puts us in October or late September, a very dangerous time for navigation. So look at this. Paul began to admonish them. Now, whatever has been going on for a few days, somehow people have begun to become aware of Paul. And now Paul has stepped from the bottom of the ship up to a public place and he said, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Let me tell you a second thing about leadership. Leadership takes initiative. 
Leadership takes initiative. It isn't a matter of rank. It isn't because he had a title. It isn't because somebody assigned him the responsibility to assess what was going on. It is just what leaders do. Leaders take initiative. I've said this through the years. You know, in, in building any kind of organization or institution and you're looking for leadership, what I want out of leadership is the ability to be trusted because they have character and integrity and selfless sacrifice for others. And two, they take initiative. They, you don't need people in positions of leadership who don't take initiative. They're not leaders. Here is this man, Paul, at the bottom of the ladder, bottom of the pole, if you will. He sees the need. He identifies the need. He takes action. He steps up. He takes charge. And this leads to a third element of leadership. In taking the initiative, leaders use good judgment. Leaders use good judgment. Common sense says we're in trouble. This voyage is going to be a disaster. We're going to lose the cargo, the ship, and potentially all of our lives. But and this is naturally so, the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. The pilot and the captain, wouldn't they know? Yeah, but what have they got at stake? Whatever the cargo is, is how they get paid. They're really ready to run the risk to get the delivery done. So they've lost their objectivity. They took issue with what Paul was saying, it's just interesting to me that here's a guy who's a lowly prisoner. Now, all of a sudden, he's in a debate with the captain of the ship and the pilot of the ship. He's ascended all, all the way to that level purely because he can be trusted, because he takes initiative and he has common sense, good judgment. Well, they didn't like the harbor called Fair Havens, mentioned in verse 8 in the city of Lycia, because the harbor was not suitable for wintering. They didn't want to spend the whole winter there. And the problem was, if, they, if they're, if they're going to stay there, they're going to be there through the whole winter because those winds blow all winter long. And uh, they didn't want to be stuck in, quote-unquote, Fair Havens for the winter. So the majority, now there's a bad way to decide things. Take a vote. The majority, who's, whose idea was that? Where is the authority of the captain and the pilot and the navigator? Take a vote? We don't like this place. We don't want to be here all winter. We've got a life to live. So the majority decided to put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, not Arizona, Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, the island of Crete, facing southwest and northwest. And that's what they wanted because that's the backside of the wind. The wind is coming northeast, north, or southeast. So they wanted to get a place that's going to be commodious, comfortable, and spend the winter there. So when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close to the shore. They got a little good wind. They said, let's, let's go. But... Verse 14, before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called 
Euroquilo, Nor'easter, Eurocladon. And when the ship was caught in it and couldn't face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. You know what they do when that happens? So that they don't go in a circle and sink, they tie the rudder down, stiff in the center. If the rudder's moving, they're just going to go chaotically. So they just let the wind drive them. This is a bad decision to leave Fair Havens, right? So guess what the mumbling is? We should have listened to who? We should have listened to Paul. We shouldn't, should have listened to Paul. Paul is not a gambler. Let me tell you something. In leadership, if you're a gambler, you will lose your credibility. You will lose your right to lead. You don't need to put anything at risk as a leader. You need to operate with a cautious sense of what is right. So the ship is just being driven by the wind. And uh, couldn't face the wind. It gave way, let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. All of those uh, big wooden ships... Um, sometimes called triremes. They actually had people who rowed down below, but in this case, it seems to be only a sailing ship. All of them had a, a lifeboat, and the lifeboat basically was attached to the back of the ship and floated on the water connected by a rope. And when they hit a storm like this, they wanted to get the lifeboat into the boat because they were going to have to need that um, in the event that they needed to leave the ship and get to shore. So they had trouble hoisting the lifeboat. They used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. This is a fascinating thing. Those ships were made out of tongue and groove wood, and as the storm churns the sea, the sea pounds the ship. Those ships had a series of winches on deck and ropes that went around the hull and were tightened by the winches. And as the wood began to pull apart, they tightened up the winches. They called it frapping the ship to keep it from falling apart. So they, they managed to, with some difficulty to get the lifeboat in. Now they're frapping the ship, and they, they know essentially what's going to happen. They're going to run aground on the shallows of Surtees. That's exactly what I said a moment ago. That's the graveyard of ships in North Africa. The wind would blow them all the way across the Mediterranean into the rocks of the Surtees. So in order to stop from doing that, they threw down the sea anchor, and let themselves be driven along, but they're going at a slower rate because it's dragging the anchor or anchors. Verse 18, the next day we were being violently storm-tossed. They began to jettison the cargo. This is desperation. Why do they do that? You've got to get the ship up out of the water. It's running heavy. It's running low. The water's coming in. You've got to lighten the ship to pop it up out of the water, so they start throwing the cargo away. And that's their income. That's their livelihood. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. That's everything they used to sail the ship and man the sails. They're, they're dumping off everything to get that ship up out of the water so the water doesn't completely fill it. And then in verse 20, Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Now they're all sure Paul was right. Paul was right. Should have listened. We should have listened. 
And again, I just remind you that using common sense, taking initiative, developing trust in a crisis is how leadership develops. So what is the next characteristic of leadership? Look at verse 21. I, I just love this. When they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up. Guess what? He's not in chains anymore. He stood up in the midst of all of them up on the deck. And he said, I love this. Men, you ought to have followed my advice. Just rub it in. I told you so. You ought to have followed my advice and not to have sailed from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Here's the fourth thing about a leader. Speaks with authority. He speaks with authority because he has an authoritative word. You, you may never have an angel coming from God telling you exactly what's going to happen so that you can speak of something the way Paul did. But as a leader in the kingdom of God, you always have an authoritative word, don't you? You have the revelation of Scripture. You know what they said about Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? They said he spoke as one having what? Authority, and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Authority. I remember when I used to do uh, um, some speaking down at the L.A. Police Academy, we had a conversation about the fact that they were dropping some guys out of the uh, academy because of their voice. I mean, you just can't walk up to a, a bandit and say, put him up, you're under arrest. Not going to work. Even the, even the female police have to <clears throat> work on uh, getting a little deeper. We're not just talking about tone of voice, obviously. But you're talking about a kind of a soft authority based upon an absolute principle. This is where I would just inject in, in this kind of illustration Effective leadership is based on conviction about principles. Hey, we do that. We don't do that. All strong leaders have convictions. And in the kingdom of God, those convictions are framed by Scripture. Framed by Scripture. That's, that's what's so fascinating to me, to watch the, the presidential parade going on now. With all these people who, who basically don't even... They, they, they may, some of them may be Christians, but they don't have a clear sense of sound doctrine so that they, they don't come off with these unbending absolutes based upon divine authority. Paul didn't have the New Testament yet, obviously, although some of it had been done. But he did have a word from the Lord through an angel God had said, this is going to be the outcome. And he spoke with authority. Not lording it over them, but confident in the reality of what he knew to be true. To be true. 
That's what leadership does. Leadership is trusted, takes the initiative, uses good judgment, and when it comes time to speak, it speaks with authority so that it engenders confidence in others, and we see that immediately. So he says, um, uh, verse 22, I urge you to keep up your courage. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this night the angel said, uh, this is how it's going to be. God has granted you all those who sail with you. Then verse 25, therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. By that kind of confidence in a, in a revealed message from God, you strengthen other people. You strengthen other people. Leadership, leadership is characterized by the kind of strength that people lean on. The kind of strength that people lean on. And that's true at any level of leadership. People need someone to lean on. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 43, But now thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. This is a divine promise that God gives, but here's the prophet saying this with such firm conviction. And in leadership, we may not always have, we may not always have a direct word from the Scripture that applies to a given scenario in leadership, but we have to come to convictions based upon the principles of Scripture and speak with authority. Authority rallies people, gives them confidence and hope that they might not have in themselves. I also want to add something else that I think is absolutely critical to leadership. He says in verse uh, 35, keep up your courage, men. Keep up your courage. Leaders are optimistic. Leaders are optimistic. Like the little kid who came home and said, um, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't want to play in the baseball game today. And his mom said, why? He said, uh, because uh, I think we're going to lose. His mom said, you shouldn't say that. You should be positive. He said, okay, I know we're going to lose. <laughs> you know, there are some people, uh, G.B. Hardy said, that can go into a beautiful meadow and always find the manure pile. It's just how they look at life. Those kind of people, aren't, they're going to turn around and nobody's following. People don't follow negative people. They, they follow people who are optimistic, and with that optimism comes enthusiasm. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. People will follow you if you are optimistic, if you give them something to hope in, something to believe in. You don't even bother with the people who are negative. You just, you just move ahead without them. And if they get in front of you, you, you push them to the side. Negative people accomplish nothing. But they do thwart those who are trying to accomplish something. 
So what marks the Apostle Paul as he's ascending this, this ladder to, to the top rung? He can be trusted, takes the initiative, uses good judgment, speaks with authority, speak, uh, strengthens others, and is optimistic and enthusiastic. He believes in the outcome. Then in verse 26, let's pick up the story again, but we, he says we must run aground on a certain island. Yeah, we are going to, this to be realistic, we're going to run aground on a certain island. That's reality. But when the 14th night came, 14 nights of this, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land, and they would do that by dropping something in the water and s measuring the depth. So they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, and a little farther on they took another sounding and 15 fathoms, so they know they're getting to the shore. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, the Surtees, they thought they were going in that direction. They cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak after 14 nights of this. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship, now you know you're in trouble when the crew is trying to escape. And, they, and how were they going to do it? They were letting down the ship's boat, the lifeboat, into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. They wanted people to think they were doing something with the anchors when they were putting the boat out and they were all going to flee the ship. And then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Says it to the, to the Roman soldiers. If those men don't stay in the ship, you can't be saved. This is shocking. The soldiers had so much confidence in Paul that they cut the ropes of the lifeboat and let it go. They had more confidence in Paul than they did in the lifeboat. They cut loose the lifeboat. They believed Paul, the nobody at the bottom. And here's just a good illustration of leaders never compromise absolutes. This is how it has to be. This is how it will be. You need to stick with that plan. If, if you don't do what I said, if you violate what I've said, staying on the ship, you're not going to survive. And again, this just illustrates the very important reality that leaders never compromise absolutes. They never compromise absolutes. And for us, those absolutes are laid out in the Word of God. And then immediately in verse 33, we find out something else about leaders. They focus on objectives, not obstacles. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food. Okay, it's time to eat. Nothing's changed. Fourteen nights, nothing has changed. This is the 14th day you've been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. So now Paul is getting their focus off the storm, off the ship, off the danger, on to the goal. He focuses on the objective, not the obstacle. He focuses on the solution, not the problem. He focuses on the end, not the process. You've got to eat. You've got to eat. You're going to need strength. Verse 34, therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. 
For not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. You're all going to be saved. That's the word that I have. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. And this is another critical aspect of leadership. Leaders lead by example. Leaders lead by example. Leaders are an example to follow. They don't just stand and shout at people. They show them. They lead by example. That, that in many ways, is the very core of leadership. Paul said to Timothy, be an example of the believers. So Paul ate. And just notice this. Verse 36, all of them were encouraged and they themselves also took food. Just his example brought them all together to do the same thing. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. And when they had eaten enough, and if they hadn't eaten for two weeks, that must have been substantial, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. Still some wheat. This is another thing about leadership. There's 276 persons, and Paul activates them to get them to throw the wheat out. This is another part of leadership illustrated here, and that is leaders delegate responsibility. Leaders mobilize people. They mobilize people. What, what is leadership, you could say, is getting things done through other people. Getting things done through other people. So here you have a, a really amazing model of a leader. He can be trusted. He takes the initiative even though he's nobody, has no rank. He uses good judgment, speaks with authority, strengthens others. He is optimistic, enthusiastic, never compromises his absolutes. Focuses on objectives, not obstacles. Leads by example and delegates responsibility. He's got this 276 people all working for him now. This thing is turned upside down from where it started. He's in charge of everyone. Well, how did it turn out? When day came, they couldn't recognize the land. But they did observe a bay with a beach. And they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea. By the way, there is a book written, fascinating book, which I read. And there is, in the museums of Malta where this happened, some ancient anchors that they believe could be these anchors. Anyway, they cast off the anchors, left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders, which they had tied down, as I told you. They hoisted the foresail to the wind, and the, the wind is driving them toward the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, two seas come together, there's a place in Malta, I was there not too long ago, where two seas meet. They know, they know where that place is. It's been identified historically, it's, and part of the search for the anchors was even going on there. Fascinating. This place where the two seas met, the vessel ran aground, and the prow stuck fast in the reef and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. I mean, the wave is just pounding now. The ship can't move because it's stuck, and so the waves are just disintegrating the back of the ship, stern. So the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. Why? Because 
They could lose their life if they lost their prisoners. We're back to the thing that was so amazing about originally letting him go ashore. So in order to make sure they didn't lose their lives, they were ready to kill the prisoners so that none of them could swim away and escape. But the centurion, now the roles are totally reversed. The centurion was in charge of Paul. Now Paul's in charge of the centurion. Centurion wanting to bring Paul safely through. <laughs> if there's anybody they got to save, it's him. He's the leader. Kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. Just jump over and start swimming. Well, what are the odds that all 276 people are going to make it? Well, the rest should follow. Some on planks, others on various things from the ship. Here's the end of the story. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. <laughs> A simple statement, right? Success. Incredible success. And then chapter 28, 1, they found out they weren't in North Africa, they were at Malta, which is up in the middle of the Mediterranean. And the natives showed them extraordinary kindness. That's where Paul threw off a snake. The most, one of the most interesting places I've ever been in the world is Malta. If you ever get an opportunity to go there, incredible place. Speak the, 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 the number one language in Malta is English. Because the Knights of St. John had, were there for several hundred years and made English the most common language. They took me to a cave where they believed Paul went by where this place of the two seas meet and all of that. Um, and sitting there, I read through this chapter. Malta is in a, like in a time capsule. You just think you went back 150 years. We were putting a little boat across this bay, um, the beautiful big bay in Malta. It was an incredible place. It's a real place and it's a real story. That's leadership. May start out without any responsibility, but when the crisis comes, it will reveal itself. Crises reveal leaders. You know, my prayer for you, young people, as you go from here is, you say, well, well I don't know if I'm much of a leader. Yeah, you, you are a leader. You're a leader by virtue of the fact that you've been here. And you know what is true. You have the sound doctrine. You have the convictions. You've seen the examples. How the Lord's going to use that leadership is in His plan to yet unfold. You may not lead a lot of folks, but you will be a leader. Some of you will be a leader as a teacher. Some of you will be a leader as a mom. Uh, some of you will be a leader as, as a dad, leading the most precious souls you'll ever know, your own children, your own family. Some of you will be leaders in the church. and It will show up all kinds of places. These are the kinds of characteristics that mark effective leaders in whatever sphere and to whatever degree the Lord allows them to do that. And as I said, our, our prayer here is that the Lord would raise up in this college among those who are privileged to be here that we are the few, not many, but it's a privilege for you to be here. But we would hope and pray that when you're through here, you go out with a sense of responsibility 
to bring leadership for the glory of Christ to this very, very troubled world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you just for this very vivid account which allows us to to see a kind of example of a man who in any circumstance rose to the place of leadership because he had heard from you. We've heard from you as well. Help us, Lord, to take what we know to be true, those biblical absolutes, and without compromise, use them to become leaders in your kingdom, in your church. For your glory, we pray. Amen.